We're going to continue with this uh, difficult text, and uh, uh, we are in First Peter chapter 3. Uh, we've been in this uh, chapter for a while now as we've been looking at the fourth imperative on uh, having our minds girded by having our arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. And uh, we're now in the doctrine of this imperative, and we've spent a lot of time in this, but uh, that's okay. But we're now for Christ suffering and ours. We're in First Peter uh, chapter three, uh, and I'll start reading at verse eighteen. We've we've done verse eighteen, but we're gonna I'll read eighteen through twenty-two, and then we will finish this text in First Peter. First uh, Peter three verse eighteen. As I will read, for Christ has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the remover of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So as we continue this study today, and we got some background noise, so I'm going to uh, do a little... Uh, uh, housekeeping here with the participants. I'm going to mute us. If you want to speak, uh, you feel free to unmute yourself, but I'm going to mute everybody because life happens and everybody hears it. But let me, uh, we're going to answer today several questions as we look at this text. We're going to look at the answer one question. Who are the spirits in prison? We're going to look at what is the prison or where is the prison. We're going to look at uh, what did Christ preach to them and when did he preach to them and what was his message to them. And hopefully we'll get some benefit out of this. Remember, if you don't get anything out of this discussion, this is written for the benefit of believers in Peter's day, that they would be comforted through the persecution despite their minority status. There were but a few uh, in contrast to the many who were unbelievers in that day, they were in Rome, they were suffering persecution, and there were a very few Christians in this day and age. And so he was writing to comfort them. He's writing to us. Sometimes it seems like we are a minority, and indeed we are. We understand the verse that narrow is the way. And, and, and few who find it, and many are called and few are chosen. And we seem overwhelmed by the culture. As uh, Fran mentioned this morning, with shutting down Christian schools in Austin, and we're inundated with wickedness. And it seems like it is getting worse every day. And Scripture tells us that it will, that evil men will wax worse and worse. But And so this is a comfort to us, and it also was a comfort to those in Noah's day that there were eight righteous souls, and the rest of them, perhaps as many as eight million, were destroyed by the flood. But it's all an encouragement to us that Christ's life, his death, his burial, his baptism will vindicate us, 
And we are victorious through the suffering that we go through. So understand the reason why all this is being written. And if we don't understand the specifics of it, it's okay. Uh, neither does 2000 other years of theologians. So we're not in a, uh, we're not in a bubble, but, uh, but understand the purpose of all these things to comfort us. So let's look at, uh, at verse uh, 19. Uh, uh, we have just talked about 18, that there's a contrast. Jesus was buried and he was crucified in his flesh, but he's made alive by the spirit. And remember, we talked about there are differences of opinion, uh, what the spirit is. The last word in verse 18, uh, some some commentators, some uh, uh, translations will capitalize that S that say that uh, he's made alive by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is a popular notion of the old timers. Uh, but the ESV says it's a little S and MacArthur says it's a little S. So there are commentators whom I respect over the years. A guy that uh, Terry and Keith have turned me on to, Hebert, he believes it's a small s, so he believes it's a the resurrected Christ spirit. So however it is, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the made alive by the spirit, and then the spirit goes and preaches to the prisoners who are in prison, and the spirits are in prison. So I want to start there. Uh, in this uh, study today uh, with this verse, uh, by verse 19, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Remember last week we said this preaching is not a second chance. The word is not evangelism, which it normally is. Most of the time it's the preaching of the good news of the gospel for the purpose of the salvation of a man's heart. But in this text, the word preached is caruso, and it is a word that means proclaiming by herald, and it can either be good news or it can be bad news. And to give you an indication of how that can be used, uh, turn with me to uh, the book of Jonah, of chapter 3, uh, verse 2 and 4. Remember, Jonah was called by God. He didn't want to go. He got into a boat and fled, was put into a a whale's mouth. Uh, God told him to preach to the Ninevites, his arch enemies. And Jonah uh, finally acquiesced. He obeys Christ. He pray, obeys God. And the message is he preaches. But the message isn't a preaching of good news. It's a preaching of destruction. And so do we understand that the word preach can be either uh, good news, or it can be a, a, a proclaiming of bad news. And so in Jonah, we see this, uh, uh, Jonah uh, 3.2, we see Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of God. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly great city, and, uh, and then Jonah preaches, and he says, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we see... Uh, uh, Jonah preaching, and in the preaching is not good news, but it is Jonah. It is that Nineveh is going to be overthrown. So this is the preaching that uh, was, was accomplished to the spirits in prison. It was a proclamation of victory over evil, and it was not a second opportunity to be saved. So that's one thing that we can debunk this 
myth. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no place uh, that exists where men will have a second chance. After the after death, there is the judgment, and there's no mention anywhere in scripture scripture of a second chance after death. So that is not true. It is a, it is a wrong and it's heresy. Men do not have a second chance to hear the gospel after they're died. One thing we can understand. And now there are the next question is who are the spirits in prison? And so there are volumes of commentary on who the the uh, prison the spirits in prison are. First thing we know that spirits are the the dead. The spirits are the dead. When we die, our spirit, our soul is separated from our body. Our bodies are dead, but our spirits, our souls live on. And so these spirits in prison are the lost who die without Christ, who die without faith, who are disobedient and do not apprehend Christ by faith, whether they be in the Old Testament or the New. And so the the spirits in prisons are the, and I'll use the word, disembodied lost, and they are before for hell. So these are the spirits who are not believers, and they are disembodied, waiting for their bodies so that they may have eternity in Hades or hell. So we see that the prison, the spirits in prison are lost people who have died separated from their bodies. So that's that's who the the spirits in prison are. Now, there are four primary understandings of of who this is. And uh, I'm going to go in in a uh, in sort of reverse order. The 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 thinking by theologians uh, has varied over the years. Uh, from the time of Augustine to the time of the Reformers, the primary understanding of this text is that these spirits in prison are the are those who died at the Great Flood. So they understand that the prisoners, the spirits in prisons, are are those people. Perhaps, as Matthew Henry said. Perhaps eight million souls who died in the flood, and so the thinking of of commentators from Augustine to to the Reformation is that these the spirits in prison are those who died in the flood, and so their understanding is that Christ, when he was crucified, the interval between his resurrection and his uh, his death and his resurrection, he by his spirit or his spirit went and proclaimed his victory and therefore uh, proved his victory over death and, and, and damned them to their destination uh, to which they willingly wanted to go. So that is one interpretation that Christ literally descended into hell either by his spirit or in his body and he proclaimed this victory over them. That is interpretation uh, number one that's gone since Augustine to the Reformers. Now, there are uh, several criticisms about that, which I will get to in a minute. Uh, another, another one that is very popular 
been around about the same length of time is that is this that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh, they say number two interpretation that this is Christ pre-incarnate preaching through Noah to those who were unbelievers while Noah was building the ark. And they will take the text, and I'm going to use various texts and let you understand the meaning of this interpretation. Interpretation two is that this is Christ pre-incarnate before he became a man in Matthew and Luke and John and Mark. This is him preaching through Noah, and uh, he was preaching to the unbelievers then while Noah was building the ark. If you'll turn to Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, this would be the uh, verse that they would use to prove their understanding of this text. They would use Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, and I'm going to be reading, starting verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So these commentators would believe that this is Christ pre-incarnate, preaching through the man of righteousness, Noah, warning them of the flood to come. And this took place over a span of 120 years. And so their understanding would be that that's what, what happened. Now, this has many criticisms. The number one criticism for me, I do not understand or uh, accept this interpretation personally uh, because the pre-incarnate Christ is not who this text is talking about. If you look at verse 18, uh, this text and this verse is talking about the buried, the, the dead, the buried, and the risen Christ. So it's not talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. He's talking about the resurrected Christ. So I think this notion that this is pre-incarnate Christ uh, is, is, uh, is wrong on many levels. Uh, I do not agree with this interpretation whatsoever. The word preached when it says he preaches to the spirits in prison, is in the aorist tense. That means it's a one-time event, and it's not an event that occurred over 120 years. So uh, do not believe that this is the right interpretation, that uh, that this is pre-incarnate Christ preaching through Noah for 120 years for the unbelievers to repent before the flood comes. So uh, sort of dismiss, dismiss, dismiss that at all. The one positive about it is it eliminates the difficult doctrine of, of Christ's descent into hell. A lot of people have heartburn about that. So a positive of this uh, view is that uh, uh, Christ didn't descend into hell, and so that would eliminate that criticism. Any comments about these first two before I get into uh uh, I think the most common understanding. Any comments about these two interpretations of who the who who were the spirits in prison? Any comments? I'll assume that means you have nothing to say, or uh, I, I just don't understand. This is difficult. The third primary interpretation. This is the oldest interpretation. This has been the most accepted interpretation since. The apostolic era. This is an interpretation that is in the 
apostolic creed. This is an interpretation that is in the Athanasian Creed where it says Christ descended into hell. This is the view of much of the apocalyptical Jewish literature in Enoch and in Maccabees and in the in the Qumran cave writings and in the book of Dan, some of these that are not in the canon of scripture but are accepted as, as Jewish apocryphal uh, literature that the early church would have been familiar with. It is also a, a testimony very clearly in the book of Enoch, uh, which has two books and many, many chapters, uh, not in the canon of Scripture, but mentioned by Peter in Jude and mentioned by Peter in, in Second Peter. This, this, this understanding is that Christ descended into hell between the his resurrection and between his death and his resurrection, those three days, and the prisoner, the spirits in prison, uh, are the fallen angels. Now, before your head explodes, let me explain what this is. This interpretation is the oldest. Uh, it is probably the most consensed interpretation in the scripture. Uh, but the fallen angels, we have to go to, uh, uh, two texts to understand fallen angels. First of all, let's look at Job chapter 1. Uh, remember that Genesis and Job are the two earliest books written in Scripture. Uh, and uh, we see in Job chapter 1 uh, that, the, that fallen angels are going to be identified, uh, uh, or the, the term sons of men, which we'll get into in a second, are going to be identified as angels. Look at Job uh, chapter 1, verse 6. We see Satan and the, and the angels are in, in God's presence. Now, there was a day when the sons of God uh, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So the understanding from Job is that this phrase, sons of God, are angels, okay? So these angels, along with Satan, who is an angel, a created being, they stood in God's presence, and they falsely accused uh, uh, Job, of course, in front of God. Now let's turn to Genesis uh, chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. As we try to come to some grips with who these spirits in prison are that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory over. Uh, so look at chapter 6 of Genesis. This is pre-flood, and this is the reason why God flooded the earth, because of violence in the earth and because of the wickedness of every man uh, on the earth. So we look at uh, chapter 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Let me read a few verses. Uh, now it came to pass when men began to, began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of men, this is the phrase that we're going to understand from, from context and from antiquity, this phrase, sons of men are going to be angels. And in this context, these are going to be fallen angels. And we'll get into this in a second, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit won't strive with men forever, for he's indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 
and there were giants on the earth in these days. And afterward, when the sons of men, sons of God, came into the daughters of men, that they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And so we see this. So commentators in a careful intent to properly exegete Scripture, knowing that Scripture does not contradict Scripture, uh, they say that these this phrase, sons of men are angels. So immediately we have a problem. So if you read this, you say, uh, so angels uh, uh, had were intimate with women. And so we know the verse that says that angels... Uh, do not marry in Matthew, and so we see they're not able to procreate. So the understanding from antiquity, if you read all the commentators, is this, to get around this, is that fallen angels, and we know that a third of the angels fell and went with Satan, so these fallen angels inhabited men, and the and the source of this habitation, demonic spirits inhabited wicked men, and the offspring of these wicked men were giants, and the offspring of these wicked men were wicked men, okay? So that's the understanding, and and uh, I have heard this, this reaction to this uh, in many times teaching this, and it is generally one of incredulity and uh can't imagine this. So uh, that is the oldest understanding from antiquity, from the apocryphal literature of the Jewish uh, nation, and from Peter's understanding that they would have understood this, that the prisoners in spirit or the fallen angels who left heaven, who who fell with Satan, they demonically possessed women, and these, the offspring of this, these were giants and wickedness of men. Does anybody have anything to say about that interpretation? That is the oldest, most primary understanding of the spirits in prison. Any comments about that? I was afraid of this. No comments about this. You are unmuted. And then, of course, the last interpretation is that Christ preached his victory to these fallen angels, these prison, these spirits in prison after the resurrection, eliminates the descent into hell. But he uh, uh, he preached, he proclaimed his victory over them after his resurrection. So those are the primary understandings. Now. With all that being said, this new commentator that Terry and Keith have, uh, his name is uh, Hebert. Uh, I find him to be very, very accurate scripturally, his interpretation, and I like his interpretation better than the interpretation of all of our forefathers. I'm including John Calvin, Matthew Poole, all the greats of the faith, and I like his understanding even better. So I'm going to let you uh, hear his understanding. You've heard all the other previous understandings, and this is his understanding. He says, I believe the words in which also 
which we find in uh, chapter 1, chapter 3, uh, verse 19. He says, I believe the words in which also serve to closely link, made alive with the words when and preached that follows, making Christ proclamation to the spirits in prison the direct outcome of his resurrection from the dead. Hence, it does not refer to a time between his death and resurrection. So Hebert says that Christ did not descend into hell at all, but that his resurrection was the direct the direct outcome of his resurrection was this proclamation to all the spirits, whether they be fallen angels or whether they be those who died in the flood. He does not specify, but he says the resurrection of Christ proclaimed his victory once and for all over all who had gone before, who were in torment, in hell, awaiting for their resurrected bodies. That is a pretty good summation, I believe, without getting into the specifics of did he go into hell or not. But his victory surely proclaimed uh, his vindication uh, and the the reason that the lost have for being in hell is because they did not believe in the resurrected Christ. Any comments about that explanation? Uh, Terry, do you like that explanation from Hebert? It's a pretty good explanation. It doesn't get into the specifics of whether or not he descended, but it is a general overview. Uh, the cr- resurrected Christ proclaimed his victory. Any comments about that? Uh, the verse, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient. That simply means, this is a, a orus principle participle verse. It simply means their disobedience, whether it's the, those in Noah's day or the fallen angels, their disobedience took place prior to their imprisonment and Christ's announcement to them. This disobedience that is identified in Peter three different times, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, and in 1 Peter 3, 1, not going to do that for time's sake, but this disobedience is deliberate. This disobedience is a conscious, conscious resistance to the authority of God. And, uh, this, this, they formerly were disobedient. This means they belong to that class that were disobedient. So they're being subjected and imprisoned in, in hell is a direct consequence of their disobedience. And they, they, they can belong to the class of fallen angels or they can belong to the class of Noah's contemporaries. So they were formerly disobedient. And then, we, we're, then what Peter does is he reminds his readers of what happened before the flood. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. This speaks of the the uh, patient forbearance of God that for 120 years the righteousness was preached, truth was proclaimed, the 8 million or so, according to Matthew Henry, who were alive at that time were, were told the truth, they were warned about the impending flood, 
and and Noah told him why he was building the ark because there was going to be a flood. So so God waited for 120 years. He gave them this chance to repent and to turn from their iniquity, but they did not do it. And so that's what it means. Uh, when it says in the divine long suffering, we read it in Genesis for 120 years, righteousness was preached through Noah. And so uh, we understand that. And then it says, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls were saved through water. This again, this term eight souls is literally how many people were preserved. Noah and his three sons and their daughters. So we have eight people and of all the eight million that existed possibly, only eight were saved. And so we see they were saved through water. Now what Peter is going to do is he's going to teach another uh, a great piece of theology that corrects heresy. Now look what he says. He says they're saved through water. There is also an anti-type which now saves us baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now what Peter's going to do, uh, he's going to talk about a type. Now you know what a type is. Uh, a type is a pattern. A type is a likeness. A pack, a type is a, a representative action. Uh, and what, and what the scriptures do is that one type in the Old Testament will be a corresponding type that signifies the same thing in the New Testament. So, for example, uh, I could think of many, uh, but when Adam and Eve are clothed after they sin, that's going to be a type of the shedding of blood, the death of the animals typified, uh, the sacrificial system that were, was going to be set up later on. So it's a type of the shedding of blood uh, that has to be a, a covering for sin. And so we see that. Uh, we see the ark is a type. Ark is the ark is the means by which Noah and his family are saved. That ark is a type of Christ, that he will, in Christ, as in the ark, you are saved or you are preserved through death. And so the the ark and through the water, it's it's very it's almost a double type. We see that the water is the means of death, but the water is also the means of life. As the floods come, the the water lifts up the ark, and so they are preserved through the uh, through the flood. And so the ark is a type of Christ. And we see if you if you read the scripture. Uh, you see that there's the door has to be open and shut by God, which all typifies uh, salvation through Christ and that God has to open the door and he shuts the door. So what Peter is saying is that the old world, when it was condemned in the flood, in order to encourage the current world in which he is speaking, the flood is a type and the flood uh, typifies salvation. And when, when Noah and his family were saved, they were physically saved and they were also spiritually saved and they were saved from God's wrath. And so what Peter says that this, the flood is a type. And then he goes on to say that the type that, that, that clarifies the flood type, if you'll let me say this, there's two types. The flood is a type 
which is a pattern for salvation in the Old Testament. And then he says baptism is a type. And then he he literally says baptism, uh, verse 21, there is also an anti-type which now saves us baptism. Now, correct bad theology. This does not mean that baptism saves us. This is not a teaching on baptismal regeneration. There are some denominations that believe that the physical act of baptism is a part of salvation. I know some Church of Christ denominations believe that, and there are some other denominations that believe that. But Peter is not teaching this. And so he reemphasizes, he says, I'm not talking about physical baptism as being saved, because he says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Uh, you know, water doesn't save us, but the baptism he's talking about is spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit, but baptism itself is a sign, and baptism itself is a seal, and it is an external symbol of an internal act that God has worked in our life. So just as the flood is a is a type of preser- preservation and salvation through death, the flood. So baptism is a sign of spiritual salvation, external. That is the that is the sign that we are saved, and that refers to, you know, what Romans tells us. Turn to, if you would, to Romans chapter six. Peter is saying that baptism is just a sign. It's an external sign that reveals a internal work. And we see this in Romans chapter 6. We can start many places, but let's look at uh, verse 3. Romans 6, 3 through 8. Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism, through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died from sin, Died has been freed from sin. So, so the baptism is a symbolism, is symbolic of being buried with Christ, buried to the old way of life, dead to the old man, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. So Peter is saying that is the ultimate type to which the flood points to, that type of the ark. So this is not baptism or regeneration, but it is just a reiteration of what baptism is, that it's a sign and it's a seal of the Spirit that we have been saved by grace and we've died to our old man. And water baptism doesn't say, but it is a picture of spiritual baptism, that we've been baptized by the Spirit and we've been crucified with Christ. And therefore, we no longer live, but the life we live, we live by the faith of the Son of God who lived us and died for us. That's Galatians 2.20. So everybody understand that? Two major errors are, ad- are addressed. We do not have a second chance in purgatory, and we are not saved by physical act of baptism. Any comments or questions about that difficult, difficult text? And I need a drink of water.
Any comments? Regardless of your understanding of this, this should encourage you that though there were just eight people during Noah's day, God saves his people. And there there may be just a few of us seen seemingly in this country and on this planet. God will save us and he will vindicate us. And so we see the, the, the result, the evidence that we've been baptized in the spirit. I want you to look at this. Verse 21, the, the evidence that we are in Christ. Do we have a good conscience toward God? And I just want to want me to examine me and you to examine you by spirit. Do you have a good conscience that's been purified by the blood of Christ? And do you know that you have been forgiven and that you do you know that there's no more condemnation uh, to you who are in Christ Jesus? And does your life demonstrate that you have been baptized by the Spirit and you've died to the flesh? And is your life characterized by a general, this general obedience and a desire to be faithful to God? Does it, is it characterized by uh, genuine repentance and confession and an active, uh, aggressive uh, pursuit of holiness in your life? And that is what a good conscience is in Christ. Uh, any comments or questions about that? And then to finish up, we understand that all of this happened, and so we see the end results of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that he not only reconciled men to God, but he also was victorious over the world of spirits, and that eventually one day in the purposes of God, we see verse 22. God, Jesus Christ, has ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made sub subject to him. So we see the, the humbled Christ who came as a servant, who humbled himself to the death of the cross, and now he's seated at the right hand of the heavenlies, and he has authority over all things. God, his Father, has given him authority over all flesh, and one day the resurrected Christ who has ascended into heaven will descend to earth again at the second coming. We, his saints, coming with him and he will set up his millennial kingdom and he will be King Jesus over the earth and he will take his rightful place as Lord over heaven and earth. And that is the conclusion of the doctrine behind the mindset that we're to have as Christians. You're to arm ourselves with this doctrine so that we may have the mind of Christ and we may cease from sin and be victorious in the days in which we live. Any comments or questions about any of these things? You have, you have two minutes before I have to let you go. Anybody have any comments about this text? Any questions about any of these interpretations that you are foggy about. Any comments? Don, I've got a question. Okay. When we're talking about the keys uh, that Christ has went and got, or the, the keys to, of, uh, of death or of Hades, uh-huh. Uh, Revelation 118 talks yes. about Christ has the keys to, to hell and uh, the keys to death. 
control yes. over them. That's where we are, where I was always taught that Christ went to hell, to hell and retrieve the keys in a victory over death. Where does that tie into this? Well, I, I don't believe that 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 is a. I, I believe the phrase "keys of death and hell," which uh, which really are is a metaphor for that God is sovereign over salvation. Uh, he he conquered death and he overcame death when he raised from the dead after he was crucified. So uh, I I've heard that many times. Also, Carol, that is a pretty. Uh, that is in many songs. I know Steve Green, one of my favorite songs ever that he read right. and sang was He Holds the Keys. Uh, I do not understand that literally that he has keys like to unlock a door, but that is a metaphor that represents that he is sovereign over salvation. And, uh, he didn't have to descend into hell to get keys. Uh, he's always had them. And so I understand that as a metaphor, Carol, but, uh, to be uh, to be humble before whomever has taught you that I've heard that too, but uh, I just don't understand that to be literal, and I don't understand and I don't understand it to be that he had to die and to descend into hell to get the keys because he's always been sovereign over salvation. That's my understanding. Uh, this is not a point of uh, you're less of a Christian than I am if you disagree or agree with that. Uh, but I understand how you've been told that on your life. I've been taught that, too. Well, I mean, the old Southern Baptist preacher, you know, that I grew up with, that's that's what he always talked about. Yes. Uh, you know, so I always just tied those two together. Yes, with, with that's, that's what they do. In the three days between the time he died on the cross to the time he resurrected on, on Easter Sunday. Yes. That, that's what he was down there, and he... It had victory over death and brought the keys for up to hell back where he had control. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm agree with you. He's always had control. Yes. But I, but I guess, I guess that's the symbolism that I've always had in my mind of how the victory was, was made. So the, the symbolism that you were taught was actually literal that he actually went into hell and got the keys, took the keys from Satan. Yes. It's sort of what you, but yes. That's, that's, that's been around Southern Baptist for, since the, uh, a long time. Anybody else, uh, have any comments about this? Appreciate that, uh, Carol. I don't understand it that way, but, uh, that's okay. Anybody one else? Those, one of those yes. things that, one of those things that we won't really know until we get to heaven and we can ask. That's right. And all of this, I think uh, it's interesting. yes. I think it's interesting in the Catholic Church, we said the Apostles' Creed every time, every Sunday. And I'm thinking, wow, we just chanted that. We just, I could recite it when I was a little tiny girl. So I've always just really thought he went, he descended into hell. Mm-hmm. And whether or not yeah. he did is not a point of salvation. It's, uh, it's been argued for 2,000 years. Uh, and so uh, it's very interesting. Any other comments? The Apostles' Creed that Chris is talking about, the Apostles didn't write that creed. It's just called the Apostles' Creed because it comes early on in antiquity. Uh, it's really a creed of the Catholic Church. Uh, but, uh, and it does say descended into hell, as does the Athanasian Creed. Uh, but some of the later creeds, Westminster and some of those creeds, do not, do not say he descended into hell. 
Any other comments? I have a question, not a comment. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to be certain about the interpretation of the spirits in prison. Yes. What I've written is uh, it's the resurrected Christ proclaimed his victory to all disembodied spirits. Would that be anywhere? Yes. In hell, the grave. Uh, well, the prison uh, scripture speaks of of uh, of Hades and Sheol as being the holding place until we get our bodies. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, this phrase prisoners, I, I didn't mention this. The, the Greeks. And the Jews uh, had this philosophy that was called Tardis. Uh, uh, the word is uh, in the Greek mythology uh, and in some of the Jewish literature, it's T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. And it was a place of punishment for, for wicked spirits, evil spirits, lost people. And it was actually underneath Hades. So, so the old folks, the old commentators taught that these fallen angels were even lower than Hades or Sheol, where the lost people were in a holding cell, their spirits were in Hades or Sheol, that the fallen angels they taught were underneath Hades because they left their, their first estate and they, and they rebelled against, against God with the devil. So glad you brought that up. Yeah, but the prisons and spirit are those spirits who are lost, whether they be the fallen angels, uh, whether they be those in Noah's day, anybody who is lost and without Christ who dies, his spirit or their spirit is in, their spirits are in prison. And that's the metaphor. They're, they're without Christ, without hope, and they're just waiting for their bodies. So they could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. Friends. Spirits in prisons could be anywhere. But in this context, since he's talking about Noah, and uh, many people think the fallen angels. Uh, uh, just to give you one more verse before I leave, I didn't read this. Jude chapter six, Jude, Jude verse six. Uh, Jude verse six. If you want to look at this later on, uh, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. For the judgment of the great day. So that's where you get this concept of Tardesis, that word under darkness, uh, those angels who fell. And so that's where all this comes up, Jude verse 6. Any other comments? Thanks. Hey, I appreciate you guys listening to difficult, difficult text. And uh, I'm going to let you guys understand it the way the Spirit allows you to. Uh, and as you properly look at it yourself. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll be able to go to worship at 11. Father, thank you for the victory of your son over death and Hades. I thank you that he died to reconcile us to himself and that he was successful in that and that we, your people, have been reconciled to the Godhead through the work of Christ and that, Christ, you also victorious were victorious over evil spirits, and you also judged the fallen world and the fallen angels and those before the flood. You declared your victory over them. We thank you for baptism. It is a sign of your internal work in each one of us, and I pray that each one of us would have a good conscience and be examining ourselves and to judging ourselves and to making sure that we are in the faith 
that we that our lives are characterized by faithfulness and obedience and that we are careful to aggressively cease from sin in the way we live our lives. Father, thank you for this text that it encourages us that Christ has vindicated his people and will vindicate us and he has won the victory. And we thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.